Hi, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. It is Tuesday, November 28th, and I'm Jessica Steinberg. I'm speaking today with political correspondent Tal Schneider and Arab affairs reporter Luca Pacchiani. Hi. Hi to you both. Hi, Jessica. Good morning, Jessica. Hi. It is day 53 of the war. The Gaza pause is being extended uh, after 11 hostages were released last night, Monday night, in stable condition and reunited with their families. That last group included nine children and several mothers, but none of the fathers. The Prime Minister is reviewing the list of hostages set for release today, Tuesday, and Secretary of State Antony Blinken is about to make a third trip to the region since the start of the war. We'll talk about the extension of the pause, the continued release of hostages, along with comments from the Fatah Secretary General about the October 7th massacre and a surprising source of support on U.S. campuses. All of that after a quick break. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachuk Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek team at www.sarachechlawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. Okay, Tal, last night's release of the latest group of hostages was delayed for a variety of reasons, but also as Qatar and Egypt were brokering an extension of the temporary truce that will probably bring about 20 more hostages released. Tell us what it really means. Tell us what we're looking at over the next couple of days. Right, so we, up until now, um, Hamas uh, released 72 people that were kidnapped. This includes this number includes the foreign workers, the Thais and the Philippine uh, foreign workers that were um, also kidnapped from their homes in in the region on that Saturday morning. Uh, and um, among them, fifty Israelis, mostly you know women and kids. And um, part of the agreement uh, last week, uh, a week ago actually, was that you may extend this um, event in a couple of more days in order for the Hamas to release more women and kids that they have. Uh, we think we think that they have up to more eight kids, and um, the rest of them will be uh, the rest of the people that will be released are women and uh, maybe more of an elderly women, but they have to release mothers with kids together according to original agreement. And we all know that specific clause was completely breached. We have Raya Rotem, whose her daughter was released, uh, Hilal Rotem, but she, she was separated from her daughter 
in uh, by the hands of the Hamas. The Hamas said, we don't know Raya's whereabouts, but when the daughter came home and spoke to her uncle, uh, he said on TV that they were separated two days before the release. So we, we need to see Raya with her daughter at home. We also need to see the, the, the brother of Maya Regev. They were also separated. He is a, he is a teenager. He's underaged. And um, other than that, we definitely know of the Bibas babies. This is a four years old Ariel. He's 10 months old, Kfir, and their mother, Shiri. Those are the, uh, the redheads, just to remind everyone, the, the very, very obvious redheaded kids and their mom. Exactly. And their father, Yerden, was also kidnapped. So we've seen this uh, phenomenon of fathers, at least, you know, yesterday, just five of them. And if you put in Yerden, I hope that the, the family will be um, partially brought back. But if you put Yerden, it's the sixth father. But you have any more fathers that stayed behind, that were kidnapped with their kids, and they are in captivity. This is heartbreaking. I mean... The group that arrived last night, very, very late, included very young and fragile twins, three years old. They were carried on their hand, on the hands of, of one mom and another woman um, wearing, you know, pink garment, pink, pink robes. Sweatshirts, right. You know, the, the picture was so um, disturbing because you see those two women in wearing bright pink in a very dark night and two gun gunmen walking around men with 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 the guns and, and the bands on the head. And the, the, the image was so horrifying, yet somewhat, you know, I don't want to say comforting, but, you know, they, they, they put them in an ambulance. So... It was it was a relief, but yet very very strong scene and and, and horrifying scene. And we see the the girl, eleven years old, returned on a wheelchair because she was shot in her legs and and brought into an Israeli hospital. At, at, when we record this um, um, this podcast, we don't know yet of her you know medical condi- condition. The images and and what we hear from the families member of of those people who were abducted are horrifying. Um, they tell the story of not eating much because there was no not not enough food, and some you know fathers, men's and 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 people at the age of I suppose around forty and fifty giving away their food so the little ones and the and then the elderly will be more um will be more fed, sleeping on 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 chairs plastic chairs that are put together to be some sort of a bed or without any blanket or anything. And some of the younger boys, you know, teenager boys at the age of 12 or 13, sleeping under the chairs. So because, you know, the families there were trying to protect them and get them together, uh, not seeing any daylight, being under tunnels. And the most horrifying story of how Yehya Sinoir, the master of this, of these atrocities, the master of the massacre, the person who sent all of the thousands of terrorists to torch the houses and rape women, how he came in for a visit and uh, told them, I'm Yehya Sinoir, you're all very well protected and stuff like that. This is really chilling stories from inside. We know that um, some of the uh, people that were abducted are not with the main group. 
they were maybe taken to to a different terror organizations given as a token for them or something like that you know details are sketchy on that point yep there's a, a lot that's coming out I know that um, every day now there's a, a a press conference or two that family members of those who were released hold for the press and right all of this all these details are, are being unfolded and shared and uh the pizza and the rice and the molded plastic seats that people slept on and not being able to go to the bathroom for hours. Uh, it's all coming out slowly, and I imagine and we'll obviously keep on hearing it and, and relating it to in our stories. Jessica, I think it's really important to repeat the story of Talamano, the daughter of Elma Avraham, 84 years old, the daughter... St- stood in front of the TVs yesterday and, and told the unbelievable story. Her mother was brought in with al- almost no pulse and a very, very low body temperature. After 50 days in captivity, she hardly survived. And she is now in, um, in intensive care under anesthesia. Um, you know, her life was on, on a really, she's on a life support. We don't know what's going to happen with her. Uh, she, when she was taken from her house on a motorcycle back in October 7th, she was, you know, a typical 84 years old, um, treated with some medicines, but vital. She hosted the kids. She has grandkids and she has many um, grand-grandkids. She hosted them uh, just a couple of days earlier on a Sukkot holiday, uh, serving food and being lively. And then during 50 days of captivity, of captivity, denied all medicine. She didn't get her routine treatment and her situation deteriorated day by day. And when they brought her back on, on I think, on a Sunday night, she hardly survived. And this is, you know, her daughter cried in front of the TV telling how they prepared all of the medicine and, and they took it to the Red Cross in, I think it's in Geneva or in Europe, um, somewhere. They took it to the headquarters and begged them, bring those medicines for my mother inside captivity. She cannot survive a day without those medicines. And and the Red Cross is just, they're, they're just helpless. I mean, in Israel, we, 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 there is a joke now going on. They're like, you, you Uber drivers, they do nothing. Of course, on the Israeli side, they get to visit any type of convicted murderer or um, terrorist. But on the other side, this is just just a joke. They have no access and they have no, they, they, don't, they don't even raise the world to know that they have no access. And this woman, Elma, who is a kibbutznik, is a grandmother, you know, why, why is she, you know, what did she do to the world to deserve this, this atrocity? To be held like that on a bench, on a plastic bench, for for fifty one days, it's really um, damning, damning speech that her daughter gave yesterday. It was very powerful in that sense. Okay, thanks, Tal. We're going to take a break, and when we're back, Luca will tell us about uh, what Jabril Rajoub had to say, the Secretary General of Fatah Central Committee. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. 
And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. You know, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll privileged to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. Okay, Luca, so last week you wrote about Jabir Lajoub, as I said, Secretary General Fatah Central Committee, obviously a, a very well-known political figure uh, in the Palestinian world, in the Palestinian Authority. He was in Kuwait justifying the October 7th attacks and massacres and saying that Israel is ultimately responsible for the attacks. Give us a little bit of a sense of what you heard and what you wrote. Yeah, exactly. As you said, he was uh, at a meeting with journalists in Kuwait. And there he said that basically the October 7th attacks uh, were part of a defensive war um, conducted by the Palestinian people against the Israeli aggression, the Israeli occupation. And at the end of the day, it's Israel's, it's Israel's responsibility if these things happen. Uh, now, we've not heard a single... He's from Fatah, the ruling party of the Palestinian Authority. We've not heard a single um, Fatah official, starting from President Mahmoud Abbas and down the hierarchy. None of them has yet condemned the atrocities of October 7th, uh, which is pretty shocking. Uh, and this raises doubts about whether the Palestinian Authority can really brought back to power in Gaza, as uh, President Biden has, has uh, repeatedly requested. Um, President now has said that, you know, as long as we don't hear a condemnation, there's no chance that we're going to allow them back. Um, uh, Jibu Rajub, who is also, by the way, head of the Palestinian Football Association and the Palestinian Olympic Committee. So there's two chances to boycott him there if we want it. Said that Hamas is part of the social and political fabric of the Palestinian people and part of our struggle. And we've heard uh, several Palestinian um, voices lately, uh, including Hussein al-Sheikh, who's considered um, number two, uh, like um, the deputy of, of Mahmoud Abbas, saying that uh, Hamas should really be, be brought back into the um, uh, Palestinian government coalition, not as a military wing, but as definitely as a political uh, actor. And Fatah has been losing a lot of support to Hamas uh, in the West Bank lately, um, both of because of its corruption, or corruption, because actually part of the Palestinian people also in the West Bank uh, kind of admire Hamas for it in October 7th. And so you see more and more efforts to just, uh, of, by Fatah official, trying to bring back uh, Hamas supporters. Do you feel like that is what you're going to be seeing a lot more of, that we're going to be seeing a lot more of Hamas supporters in the West Bank, uh, more of a, a very obvious presence? Or, you know, do we have, does it just remain to be seen based on what happens in terms of the war in Gaza? Look, since the beginning of the truce, when uh, Israel hostages started to be released and Palestinian prisoners, uh, uh, mostly convicted of, of terror acts, uh, were also released in parallel, uh, you see that a lot of them were welcomed in Palestinian cities, including Ramallah, which is the headquarters of the Palestinian Authority and of Fatah. 
Uh, they were welcomed with uh, um, Hamas banners, with uh, Hamas chants. Uh, there's this one woman of a, of a terrorist that hugs her son in a video and says, we will redeem you Hamas with their blood and soul, stuff like that. And you wouldn't see these scenes in the past. Like there was a lot of Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad supporters in the north of the West Bank, in the Janine Nablus area, but not so openly in Ramallah. So it's definitely uh, worrying. There's definitely uh, uh, like a lot more public support than we used to see. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen at the end of the war. You know, there's, there's so much that can still happen uh, in terms of also where the Palestinian Authority is going to go if really President Biden and the international community can really bring them back to uh, Gaza in a revitalized, revitalized version. And we don't know what that means. So... It's hard to predict at this point. Right. Okay. But the support is definitely there. Okay. Yes. And then moving on, uh, you also have another piece about advocacy. This is in the U.S. from a very unexpected source. source. Jonathan El Khoury, a Lebanese Christian who spent much of his childhood growing up in Israel. You can tell us more about that. More about that. But you spoke to him about his advocacy on U.S. college campuses. So give us a little bit of intro of, as to who he is and what he's been up to. So Jonathan Hori is uh, the son of a fighter of the South Lebanon uh, army, which um, fought alongside Israel during the first Lebanon war. And he came to Israel with his family at age nine in 2001, I think. Um, and they settled in Haifa. Uh, and he still speaks Arabic with a strong Lebanese accent, although he spent all his life growing up in a, like an Arab-Israeli community. Um, he's still very much connected to his Lebanese roots. And... Um, he first uh, um, became um, an advocate for uh, recruitment of Christians in the Israeli army, like um, Arab Christians. And then later on, he moved uh, to um, uh, Israel advocacy abroad. Uh, he does a lot of that in Europe and on uh, U.S. college campuses. He's been doing that since 2017. Uh, and obviously, we need a lot more of those people right now with, uh, with the ongoing war. So he was on a tour of eight uh, college campuses. Um, a few weeks ago. Where does he live now? Haifa. He lives in Haifa. He still lives in Haifa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then he said some interesting stories and impressions that uh, he brought back with him. Uh, he said one thing that was very shocking to hear, and it's also the title of the of the article. He said that a lot of people don't see Israelis as, as humans. Uh, that, that was his impression. And that's why they rip off uh, posters of, you know, Israeli baby hostages, because we just don't think, you know, that's uh, our lives are worth. Um... Uh, he said that he doesn't, This what he usually does is goes on Israel Apartheid Week on, on college campuses and there he really stands, they usually build up this apartheid wall thing um, and he stands by the wall and engages in conversation with people, that's what he usually does, but this time he said, uh, you know, I, he didn't want to engage uh, with uh, anti-Israel activists. That wasn't the point. The point was to address the modern majority. So he said that his impression is that about 80% of the people don't really know uh, what's going on uh, in the Israel-Palestine conflict. Um, and so he wanted to give him more fact, more, more, more context. Um, usually he talks about the history of the conflict, and this time he just, he just wanted to focus on the human experience. So he brought with him three friends of uh, people killed in the Nova Festival massacre. Uh, to tell the story of their of their yeah of the friends that were slaughtered, um, and he told his personal experience. You know, he, he said that someone came up to him and and said that Haifa, his own city, was an apartheid city where the separate buses, you know, like in South Africa, separate buses and separate cinemas. And he's like, you know, no, I went to a Jewish school. My father works for the local bus company. There's definitely no, no, no separation between Arabs and Jews. 
Um, he's also a member of the LGBTQ community. So that's also a very interesting fact, especially for progressives um, to hear about how is you know it was welcome in Israel. He can live his life as a, as a gay man freely, uh, whereas it would be possible in native Lebanon or pretty much anywhere else in the in the Middle East. And what was sort of uh, the closing of the, of the piece or of your conversation? Like, where where does he go from here in terms of what is that? Does he, does he just keep on going back and doing these tours? What's his plan? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, he says that, like he sees a role in Israel public diplomacy carried out by the government through its ministries, but he says that uh, the activities that people like him do on the ground, especially abroad, is very important. So he's going to keep on doing that. He's also very active on social media; has a lot of followers on Facebook and Instagram. So a lot of his video clips uh, are in Arabic. So he addresses also you know the wider Middle East region, which is very important. So he's going to keep on doing that. Got it. Spreading the news. Okay, good stuff. Yeah. Thank you, Luca. It's a little bit of a positive end to this podcast, which we don't have a lot of that these days. Thank you for being on today's Daily Briefing. It's been good to see you and talk to you. Uh, And thanks to all of you for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Stay tuned for tomorrow's installment. This episode was produced by the Podwaves. If you have comments about this or other episodes, please drop us an email. We're at podcast at timesofisrael.com. And of course, feel free to recommend us to other listeners and rate us wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, take care and be well.